Hello, and welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am, if you were guessing, Garrett Ashley Mullet. I am 34 years old today. Today is November 5th, 2020, and never in my life, in my 34 years now, have I had a birthday quite like today. Today is a little bit of an odd duck. It is the year 2020 for one thing, so who knows how today might go. But also, the results of the United States elections uh, have been very much in dispute since two days ago, since, honestly, before the election even occurred, we were fed a number of things uh, from both the right and the left, from both Republicans and Democrats, which would lead any person who's informed, who has their finger on the pulse of uh, what's going on, to be wary about uh, how Election Day was going to go. I personally was not surprised in general about how the uh, Election Day went, about what the reporting was like on Election Day, how the Wall Street Journal covered it, how Fox News covered it, how various outlets have uh, chosen to announce certain states in favor of Biden as soon as it looks like they even potentially plausibly could, uh, being reluctant to call states in favor of President Trump, even when it's obvious that he's got a clear advantage. Uh, the Democrats are trying to steal this election. That is uh, very, very clear. It's abundantly clear. I follow this stuff very closely. That is my position. And uh, seeing as how it's my birthday, I really don't want to spend this podcast talking about the election. And if you are one of my fellow Americans, whether you're friends, family, or just some stranger out in the public who has stumbled across this podcast, I don't think if you're in the thick of this still with me that you want to hear me talk even more about the election. So we're not going to talk about the election today because this is my podcast. I can do what I want to. It's my birthday and I can do what I want to. I am 34 years old today, and I want to talk about life. I want to talk about life more broadly than the election. There is more that's going on in the world and in this country, and I think we should talk about more than just the election. And maybe just maybe, if uh, you listen to this podcast in a timely manner while these events are current... And if you are exhausted with all this talk about the election, you will find yourself uh, a welcome reprieve. Let's talk about something else. What else is going on? Not as a way of ignoring these uh, highly emotionally charged, highly contentious events that uh, we're in the midst of, but as a way of keeping perspective. I don't want to be someone who buries my head in the sand. I have never much respected people that are ostriches about life. Uh, I think every now and then it's good to take a step back and to say, hey, you know what? I've got my own family. I've got my own life. I've got my own job. I've got to do in order to do all of that well. I've got to take a break from social media. I've got to take a break from the news. I've got to, you know, focus up. I got to narrow my focus to the things that I am responsible for in order to do those things well, in order to be a healthy, well-balanced person. I think that's fine for a time, but we can't camp out there. That's not a responsible uh, modus operandi. That is not a responsible default for us to set ourselves to. Uh, our factory settings are as they are. We all have our own individual personalities. I believe that God created each of us with a purpose. He put us on this planet at the time that we were born for a reason and that we should pay attention to that. We should pay attention to uh, the way that he has made us individually. What talents has he given us? What skills has he given us? What context has he put us in? What kind of a family situation and dynamic did he, uh, in his sovereign grace, decide to place us in? And, uh, and then... You know, consider all of that, and then what does God's word say, right? What is good? What is true? What is praiseworthy? What is right? Let's meditate on those things, and let's put them into practice. Let's see how we can spur one another on to good deeds and to being fruitful. 
So that is the purpose of this episode today, to talk about life more broadly so that we maintain perspective. Now, my last episode, I talked about everything. And when I say that I talked about everything, you can go back and you can listen to that. But what I was really wanting to get at was, you know, keeping a broad view, keeping sight of the big picture. Uh, this subject of everything, I believe, is a subject uh, unto itself. And I've always been intrigued by polymaths throughout history. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, for instance, was a highly accomplished artist, painter, uh, sculptor. He also did a lot of work studying anatomy towards the end of being good at the art. He wanted to paint and draw and sculpt things which were uh, highly realistic and which were true to form. And so in order to do that, he would study human anatomy. He would find cadavers, uh, people that had died, whose bodies were not being, I guess, watched very carefully or very closely, and he would study them. He would study where the veins are, where the muscles are, all of that, so that if he was uh, making art in which he was portraying people, he would do so in a way which was true to form. He also was very inventive. He was uh, uh, a person who was far ahead of his time in coming up with things like a helicopter, coming up with flying machines, coming up with you know all manner of different inventions which didn't actually find their uh, widespread application uh, for another 500 years. Now, an interesting side note on that, part of why the inventions that he came up with didn't uh, find widespread application for so long is that there were guilds. The medieval system was protectionistic. And even if you had a person at the top who was the king, the emperor, uh, you know, lower level uh, aristocrats, barons and dukes and, and such like that, they still retained their power in some measure based on the goodwill of the people they governed. And so one of the forces in play was the equivalent of the modern-day union, and that was the guild. So there were all these medieval guilds for various artisans, and they would control how certain uh, things were done. And if someone came up with an invention which might jeopardize the guild's uh, productivity, their, their livelihood, then those guilds might lobby the uh, local noble person or ruler and say, we need this put to a stop. We need to, to check this because it's it's hurting our bottom line. And the ruler, usually you know, living high on the hog and uh, really not wanting to upset his constituents and possibly risk a coup and possibly risk somebody um, you know, poisoning his uh, mead or his uh, <laughs> roast duck or whatever it was he was going to have. Uh, the ruler very often would say, "Well, that's fine. You know, I'm I'm living happily. Uh, you know, in my current state, what does it matter to me if we have some highly efficient machine that replaces the labor of these highly skilled artisans in this guild?" So then they would say, "Well, okay, let's squash that. Let's make sure that the guild slash union uh, gets protectionism for their line of work." And, uh, and so then, you know, even if an invention was a really, really great idea that was going to improve the quality of life for a lot of people and it was going to create wealth and it was going to create a higher standard of living for that city, state, or nation, uh, it would get squashed. It would get, you know, put uh, on the back burner for an extended period of time so that the status quo could be maintained. And so Leonardo da Vinci wasn't really concerned about all that. He was more concerned about being creative. He wanted to create things that were important and meaningful and that were true to form. And that wasn't just in his art, that was also in his inventions. He wanted true to form. That is uh, another way of saying they were in accordance with the laws of the universe, the laws of reality. So if he comes up with an invention, he's taking into account physics. Whether he's an expert in all of what entails physics and all of the laws that you know we're familiar with now, he was studying these things. He was making observations and, and making note of uh, you know, physical properties of the universe and then coming up with inventions accordingly. So he wasn't really concerned about what's the status quo in terms of politics. He was concerned about what's the status quo as far as reality, objectively. How does the universe work, right? What is it like? And let's portray that in, in beautiful and meaningful and 
important ways. And when I say he was a polymath or that there, you know, various characters throughout history were polymaths, what that means is that they were expert in several different fields all at once and that their expertise in several fields allowed them to make connections that other people who were experts in maybe just one field or who were having their position protected by their relationship with the local ruler just were not. You know, they weren't motivated to make these connections because they were living high on the hog. I've got my position. It's very secure. I have the right people in my family who are going to make sure that nothing threatens my position. I know the right people. I'm friends with them. I pay them off. And so that's the game. Um, you know, polymaths are historically more interested in knowledge and and advancement and being creative. And they're not so concerned, first and foremost, with who's this going to upset or who's this going to please and who's this going to flatter and who's going to like it and who's not going to like it. The question is, what do they like, right? They like creating things. They like uh, you know, coming up with inventions, and et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and meaningful discoveries about uh, the way that the universe works. Excuse me while I sip my coffee. But, uh, you know, the subject of everything is important because a lot of times advances in medical science or in transportation or in agriculture or whatever depend on connections being made between things. But also, it's important if we're in a pickle, you know, not just about forward advancement, but in making sure that we don't slip into a new dark ages. It's important that we have a broad view so that we don't get trapped. We don't get stuck. We don't fall down the mountainside uh, to our death, to our doom. Uh, we don't, you know, break our head on uh, the, the rocks at the bottom of uh, this precipice because we we failed to notice that there's a foothold here. There's a handhold there. I can grip that. Oh, look, a rope. Uh, you know, let's pull ourselves up out of this and, and get back on uh, the right path. And C.S. Lewis has a great quote, and I, I like quoting C.S. Lewis often. I don't believe his writings were inspired. They're, they're not scripture. Uh, by some reports, he didn't believe the scriptures. Uh, the Bible was the inspired word of God and infallible and all of that. If so, that is unfortunate, and uh, he was mistaken. I reserve the right to disagree with C.S. Lewis, however smart he was. He wasn't God, and he wasn't perfect, and uh, I, I am confident uh, if I'm confident of very few things, I'm confident that he got it wrong on some things and that we would do well to not follow him blindly, that we would do well to engage our brains, even if he had a lot of worthwhile, useful, important things to say, which he did. But one of the things that C.S. Lewis said was that if we are on the wrong road, progress is not going to be made by continuing on that wrong road pointed in the wrong direction. Progress will actually be turning around as soon as possible and going the other way, the right way. So anybody who thinks that they are progressive and that they want the world and our country and their lives to just get better and better and better forever needs to pay attention to whether we are on the right path. Now, I don't want to get real, real deep into social justice and leftist ideology and politicians. I really, you know, again, it's my birthday. I want to talk about what I want to talk about. And I really don't want to stress out about that kind of stuff today with the election going on. I think if you're a listener and you're listening to this, you don't particularly want to stress about that either. But I think we can make meaningful strides in the direction of understanding and uh, having a, a better understanding of these things uh, if we consider that our progressive mindset toward all of these things, towards our theology, towards our politics, towards our social life, towards our career, towards our family life, towards our personal development, towards our health, towards our whatever, our progressive view of all of that is fine, but we have to have some humility. If we lack humility and if we insist, oh, no, 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 I'm very wise and I'm on the right track and I'm the guy who's going the right direction, everybody else is going the wrong direction, and uh, and I can do no wrong, right? Everything I say is correct all the time, no matter what. Um, 
if we say we're for progress and we're optimistic and we want to stay optimistic, we need to double check our math from time to time. We need to make sure that we remembered to carry the one. We need to make sure that we don't have a placement error. We need to make sure we didn't fat finger that calculation. And sometimes it's important to have others who don't see the world and life the way that we do, uh, you know, you know, look at at our figures and our calculations and double check us, right? Because we may not be objective about it. And if we got it wrong the first time and we double check our own math, you know, who's to say we're not going to get it wrong the second time? Now, speaking of math, it reminds me of taking college algebra, college trigonometry uh, back in high school. And I went to Southern State Community College in uh, mostly Hillsboro, Ohio. And I had a professor who taught these classes. He was highly distractible. He loved to spend our time together as a class playing piano and talking about his ex-wives. And he did this to such an extent that he didn't prepare us at all for the homework. He didn't prepare us at all for the test. He wasn't actually teaching the material. He was collecting a paycheck and he was indulging himself to use a captive audience, to flatter his ego, to hear himself talk, to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we would get to the actual meat and potatoes of, you know, hey, this is what I'm here to study and I need to pass this and I need to understand it and I need to, I need to learn this. And then it was like, oh, surprise, I don't understand the material because we haven't been talking about the material. We haven't been talking about math. We've been talking about your ex-wives. If the test were on your ex-wives, I could pass. But since the, the test is on algebra and trigonometry, I'm struggling a little bit here. And uh, all the same, I enjoyed his uh, little chats. I thought he was kind of a, a funny uh, character and uh, he was entertaining. And I enjoyed the math. I enjoyed the exercises, uh, which is a funny uh, thing to say because I didn't do extraordinarily well in college trig and college algebra. I got C's. Now, part of that is because there was life happening uh, around and outside of that math class, which was uh, highly distracting and which was taking my eye off the ball. There was a lot of stress with uh, my parents and with my social life that was kind of downstream of my stress with my parents, my mother in, in particular. And so that really that took my eye off the ball when it came to my math. I think I could have done much, much better if I had had less dysfunction at home, less stress at home, less, um, you know, discord, less um, tumult that uh, was, was sapping my strength, sapping my mental energies. But even so, even getting C's in college trig and college algebra, if memory serves, I still enjoyed it because it was good mental exercise. And the nice thing about math is that you're either right or you're not right. It's not, uh, you know, it's not like art uh, is so often these days where art is very interpretive, it's very subjective. And the question is not so much, what is this art saying? What, what was the artist trying to convey? The, the question is first and foremost, what does this art mean to you? And so much art is made intentionally vague, intentionally subjective, so that beauty can be in the eye of the beholder, so that we can all do us, we can all be whoever we want to be, we can all conclude whatever we want to conclude about the universe. And so much art is really anti-philosophy, in the words of Francis Schaeffer. Uh, Escape from Reason, good book, by the way. I'm just going to throw that in there. Uh, check it out. Matt Hall, my friend, uh, pastor, uh, lead pastor of Glendive Alliance Church in Glendive, Montana, recommended that to me. Let me borrow his copy uh, several years ago. Thank you again, Matt. If you're listening, I appreciate that you, uh, you gave me that to read. I really, really enjoyed it. And I, I think of it often. That's how you know a book is good, is if you remember it often and it changes your way of perceiving things for the better moving forward. I was just recently telling my wife that uh, Escape from Reason is a book she should read as our children are going through art history and they're trying to understand art and, and these various uh, you know famous painters and whatnot throughout history, she should really read Escape for Reason because Escape for Reason talks about how the trajectory of what is popular and what is trendy and what is fashionable in art has very much uh, matched the trajectory of all of those same things uh, in the philosophical 
whatever was fashionable and trendy in philosophy, whatever was the zeitgeist, the spirit of this age in philosophy, found its expression in art and vice versa. Which is the chicken? Which is the egg? Which is the cart? Which is the horse? Uh, art and philosophy are very much intertwined, like uh, double helix in DNA. And the two of those together create so much of what we think of as culture, politics, theology, family dynamics, social trends. A lot of that, a lot of that is downstream of what is popular in philosophy. In other words, what do we suppose is wisdom? What do we suppose is folly? And also art, what do we suppose is beautiful? And what do we think of as ugly? What repulses us and what attracts us? But, it, you know, math is not like that quite so much. You know, if, if I get in a debate with you about some philosophical premise, who's right, right? Who's correct? Who's not correct? I could make a really, really good argument. And if you say, oh, no, I don't, I just disagree. I think you're wrong. Well, then that's what it is, right? What's the objective way short of Jesus coming back and the clouds parting and God saying, uh, Garrett's got this one, actually, guys, you know, that's, that's correct. He's, uh, he's got the right answer. Uh, short of that, how do you verify and confirm that you're correct in your philosophy, that you're correct in your view of art? Uh, math is a little bit different. Two plus two is not five, it's four. If you uh, read 1984, and if you're watching current events, once again, two plus two will never equal five. You can't get me to say otherwise. You can bully me all you like, but at the end of the day, two plus two is four, and it always will be four. It's objectively true. You can go through whatever uh, contortionist reasoning you like. You can think you're wise in your own eyes, and if you think that two plus two equals anything other than four, I'm going to say you've become futile in your thinking. You've been given over to a depraved mind. You're very self-impressed, but that's about all we can say for you. Uh, good job being self-impressed despite your folly. That's the only thing that's impressing me about you if you think that two plus two equals anything other than four. So two plus two equals four, and the more you get into advanced math where it's complicated, and it's challenging and it's difficult uh, to get to the right answer. And it's circuitous and it's indirect. Uh, the, the more challenging it is to get the right answer, but also the more satisfying it is if you do get the right answer. And so I remember doing homework in my college algebra and college trig classes in high school. I was taking my college courses at uh, the local community college. They were counting for high school credits as well. I would turn in homework and my professor, he would make notes and sometimes he would make notes and those notes would say, you got the right answer here. And sometimes those notes would be, you got the wrong answer here. Objectively, the answer is this and you answered that. And, uh, and I remember distinctly some of the homework he gave back to me said uh, that was the wrong answer, but very creative. Your way of arriving at the wrong answer was very creative. And, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, that's uh, not necessarily, um, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do with that. I, I always, you know, felt really good that he said that. It was, you know, like, hey, I'm being very creative as I'm getting at the wrong answer. Uh, I was always pleased with that answer, uh, that feedback that he gave me on my homework in red pen. And uh, I've remembered it to this day. It might be the single uh most valuable lesson that I learned from him and learned from college algebra and college trigonometry uh, is that, hey, that's the wrong answer, but you're very creative in getting at the wrong answer. I'm, I'm impressed at how creatively you got that wrong. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and also, too, I mean, you think about basketball, right? And I think about my dad playing basketball. He and his brothers played basketball. My dad was, you know, a very good athlete, but never ostentatious. He was always the Larry Bird kind of athlete. There's no real extra in the way that Larry Bird played basketball, and neither was there any extra in the way my dad played basketball. My dad played just very straight, very direct, very efficient, uh, very almost German, almost kind of like a stoic basketball player where this is the way to get the ball through that hoop and to score a point, and that's what I'm going to do. And I'm not going to make a show of it, and I'm not going to head fake, and I'm not going to 
beat around the bush and I'm going to be just really efficient in my motions uh, to make this ball go through that basket and to do it again and again until I win. And I think of playing basketball with uh, a number of kids that lived in Hillsborough, Ohio, back in high school again. And, uh, you know, a number of the black kids in town, they did not play the way that my dad played. They did not play the way that I, my dad taught me to play. My dad taught me to play basketball in a very direct way. And I'm not as good of a basketball player necessarily as my dad was. Um, I wouldn't even say necessarily. I, I'm not as good of a basketball player as my dad was. My dad was a really good athlete in that regard. But the way that he taught me to shoot, the way that he taught me to dribble, it was very efficient. It was very direct. It was not stylistic. It was just to the point. And uh, so I would play with these black kids in Hillsborough, Ohio, and they were always just, you know, very tricky. They were always doing head fakes. They were always trash talking. They were always making extra noise to kind of throw uh, their opponents off focus. They were always dribbling the ball back and forth, you know, between their legs and behind their back. And they were all they were very talented in handling the ball, excellent ball handlers. I could never match quite their ability and skill with handling the ball. And I, I was always really impressed by that and kind of jealous, honestly. And I tried to imitate it and uh, never, never quite had the hand-eye coordination that they did. But uh, I, I could win, right? Like I could win playing with them because I don't score points necessarily by handling the ball. I don't score points by dribbling. I score points by shooting. I score points by getting this ball in that basket. And at the end of the day, that's what counts. And I could, I, you know, I could think about times where I, where I tried to learn the way that they dribbled the ball and uh, tried to practice that, tried to develop that skill and that hand-eye coordination and that muscle memory and all of that. And I'd be dribbling, 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 dribbling. And I'm, you know, really like, hey, yeah, I'm getting this. I must look really, really cool to somebody else who's watching me. And I probably look like a huge dork, honestly. But I'd be dribble, 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 and then I'd shoot. It completely missed the basket. Like it wouldn't even bounce off the uh, backboard. It wouldn't even hit, touch the rim. And it's like, uh, okay, that was a really creative way of getting the wrong answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that that is the way that I felt when I read my college algebra professor's note on my homework. He says that was the wrong answer. Very creative. You arrived at the wrong answer very creatively. And so you know, that's kind of the way that we should look at so many things is you know, it's fine to be creative. It's, it's fine to be subjective about some things and say, you know what? I just disagree. Right? This is the way I feel about it. This is the way I look at it. I could be wrong, but you know, I, I don't think you're correct. We could both be incorrect in different directions. The answer to 2 plus 2 is 4, and it's no more 5 than it is 3. You're answering five. I'm answering three. We're both wrong, albeit in different ways. And uh, you know, in that case, the truth is in the middle. But if I say the answer is five and you say the answer is six, the truth is not in the middle. The answer to two plus two is neither five nor six. And it is not 5.5. The answer to two plus two is four. So we're both wrong. One of us is more wrong than the other because one of us was nearer to the truth, objectively, on that number line. So all of this is uh, you know to, to say that when it comes to this podcast, talking about everything, talking about life, right? Living, living in a wise way, living in a way that is meaningful, that is important, that is honorable, that achieves the purpose for which our maker made us. We may have to be more focused, some of us, we may have to be more uh, laser-sighted in on a given topic or a given activity. But in our private lives, in the time that we use for leisure and relaxation and conversation with other people, we can choose to invest that in ways that help us to be more effective at our given pursuit, our, our specific focus our discipline. And so we should, we should be, we should be trying to be more balanced individuals 
who are not just good at shooting a basketball, who are not just good at doing math equations, who are not just good at talking into a microphone, who are not so single factor, you know, not just because we might get to the wrong answer, but because we are made to be more than a button pusher. We are not just a cog in a machine. We're created in the image of almighty God. And so let's act like it. Let's treat one another like that. Let's encourage that in our friends, in our family, in other people. And if we start to see the way that people live their lives with an intentionality in view, where that is the, that is the goal that we have, is to be more intentional, then I think, for one, we're going to be more productive. For two, we're going to be more at peace and content, no matter what happens, whether Biden is president, whether Trump is president, whether we get hit by a giant meteor, whether the you know, Yellowstone supervolcano erupts, whether COVID-19 all of a sudden goes from being a 0.00 something percent mortality rate to being a 99% mortality rate. I mean, whatever happens, if that is our intention to be intentional, we will be happier, healthier. And if we are Christians and we're being intentional about our Christian life, we will be holier. So one of the things that I've been struck by here lately is this church that we're attending here in uh, Evans, Colorado. Evans is uh, basically the same thing as Greeley, Colorado. They have a different name, but uh, they're just one contiguous city. And uh, Evans, Colorado, Summit View Community Church, we have, uh, I believe, a divine appointment to be there, to be with these people. I believe that the Lord has brought us here for a purpose, both to encourage and be encouraged by these people, both to help and be helped by these people, and together to, to serve him, to honor him, to represent his gospel for this time, for this season. Now, only he knows uh, when that season will end, how it will end, and what comes next. I am not the good Lord. I can't tell you what comes next. I can tell you what I expect, but ultimately, the Lord knows. We are here now. I know that we are here now. And there's a lot of uh, discussion in recent weeks in particular about predestination, about election, about God's sovereignty, about man's free will. Does man have free will or does he have uh, only the ability to choose that which is in his nature to choose? He will not choose to do what is right because he doesn't have a righteous nature apart from God supernaturally intervening by his grace to put a renewed heart within us, to replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, to put a new spirit within us, a renew a right spirit within us. And amidst all this discussion about, you know, what is the nature of man? What is the nature of God? I somehow find a way of uh, disagreeing with almost everybody, and unless the people I'm talking with are saying, you know, I think there's a mystery to it. I disagree with everybody at some point, or I question, I question the conclusions that everybody makes. Now, if the Armenian stands up and says, well, no, it's definitely our choice. God gives us this choice. and That's all there is to it. We all have, you know, the, an equal and unfettered ability to choose. I say, well, wait a second. I mean, we can choose all day, but ultimately the, the only reason that we have a rope to grab onto and pull ourselves up with is because God lowered a rope. The only reason we have a life preserver to hold on to so that we don't drown uh, on the oceans is because God threw us a life preserver. The only reason that we have salvation to embrace and to accept is because God has extended this free gift of salvation to us. Now, the Calvinist gets worked up into a lather in a jiffy on that point. Because he says, well, wait a second, you're dead. This is not a good analogy. You're not a drowning man on the ocean. You're a dead man at the bottom of the sea. And God went down to the bottom of the ocean. He pulled you up. He breathed life back into you. He did CPR. You weren't choosing him at all. So he put faith in you. 
He put the ability to choose to accept this salvation in you. You do not have any choice in this matter. And God is choosing all of whom will not only receive salvation when they accept salvation, but all of whom will accept salvation. He's choosing who's going to have faith in him and who's not going to. And it's complicated, right? This this episode is not specifically about Calvinism versus Arminianism or predestination or election or all of that. But I find that the answers that we come to on these questions can make a big difference in the way that we live our personal lives and the ways that we order our families and the ways that we conduct the business of the church and the ways that we approach our work life and the ways that we approach our social life and the ways that we vote and the ways that we don't vote and the ways that we don't get engaged in the political process or engage the culture around us. And so I am reluctant to rush to an answer, to rush to judgment on you know, whether I'm going to adopt the Calvinist view or the Arminian view or something in between, some blend of the two. So the position I take is I don't need to take a position on this. I'm not obligated to agree with you. I'm not afraid of you. If you don't like me because I didn't take the position that you wanted me to take, well, tough noogies. My job is not to please you. I don't work for you. My job is to please God. And I believe that I please God best by reserving judgment here. I serve God best by having the humility to say, this is what God's word says. I believe that's true. I don't fully understand how it works. God does. I trust that God understands how this works. And so I'm just going to try and be faithful. With the measure of faith that has been given to me, I'm going to try and be faithful, and I'm going to focus on that, and I don't want to become puffed up and conceited because as we're obsessing over these verses about predestination and election and God's foreknowledge and his forechoosing and all of that, we cannot neglect the rest of the whole counsel of God where we know that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Are we so adamant about our Calvinist position, our Arminian position, because we love God, because we love one another. Now put aside your protestations that this is all about God's sovereignty and God's holiness, and you are really, really concerned about that. Are you really concerned about that because you're really concerned about that? Or are you really concerned about that because you want a reputation to be concerned about that? Whether I have a reputation with you about being concerned about that or not is beside the point to the reality that God sees my heart God knows. God knows my motives. And so I want to tread lightly here. I want to tread very lightly. One of the things I observe is that the folks who are very heavy on the predestination route sometimes do not give sufficient attention to their part to play. We are not sovereign, and yet we have a responsibility. And God's sovereignty cannot be an excuse for inaction and, and fruitlessness. It cannot be an excuse for being a jerk. Right? I have seen that. I have seen it up close. I have seen it in detail. I have seen it hurt. People who love Jesus, whether they were the ones who were embodying that or they were on the receiving end of someone else who embodied that, I've seen that attitude, that conceitedness, that puffed up, I am smart, I am the smartest one in the room, especially if I'm a Calvinist and all of you are not. I may be the only one in this room who's a Christian. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. And none of this is some new thing under the sun. None of this is innovative. None of this is original. You guys are falling for old traps. The Apostle Paul writes at one point, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Are they not servants of the same God by whom you believed? They are servants. And if you make them the object of your affection and your devotion, first and foremost, you will have trouble. 
and the people that follow you will have trouble and the people that are reluctant to follow you will have trouble because you're going to take it as a threat. John Calvin doesn't save me. Faith in John Calvin doesn't save me. Faith in John MacArthur doesn't save me. Faith in the many pastor friends that I have doesn't save me. You know what saves? Faith in Christ. That's the object of our faith, the object of our affection, the object of our devotion. He is the one we need to obey first and foremost. And we have to be Bereans about everybody else. The Apostle Paul, who writes the lion's share of the New Testament, he writes most of the epistles. He says, even if I come preaching another gospel, don't believe it. Even the devil portrays himself as an angel of light. So don't fall for it. Don't take that bait. But if we do take that bait, and if we think that everything's predestined, everything's foreordained, we don't have work to do, let's just chill out, let's just calm down, let's just not take this too seriously, then that has implications. And I am averse to those implications because I think some of the implications very often put us at odds with what the scriptures tell us we should be about and what we should act like. Yeah, I made a joke to my friend James Michael Scott in Ohio last night. We were talking about the election, right? Not talking about election, but we were talking about the election. And he's, you know, paying attention to it closely and stressing out about it. And we all are. And we don't want to. And we shouldn't. And we should try not to. We should try to be sober and vigilant, but let's not be anxious for anything. I was talking with him and he made some joke about how, you know, he needs to get through this election and then we need to start prayerfully considering whether Jesus wants me to run for president. And uh, it's funny. Um, I will be old enough next time around. So that's cool. I'm 34 today. And you only have to be 35 to be president. If Trump can do it, then why not? Um, I made a joke to him. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I think Jesus is telling me at 10.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. I think Jesus is telling me it's time for me to call it a night, go to bed. And uh, I said, I, I'm going to go sleep like a Calvinist. And that's funny because, I, I mean, I've talked with him before about you know my... my uh, reservations about uh, Calvinism and, and all of that. I have, I have so much admiration for my Reformed friends and family who are stalwart in testing truth claims and moreover testing emotions, emotional reactions to things, testing those against the scriptures. But I've talked with him before, and, and so he knows I'm not a Calvinist. I don't identify as a Calvinist. I'm not anti-Calvinist, but I, I'm not a Calvinist. I refuse to see the necessity of that. I don't need to be a Calvinist. I can just be a Christian. I, I believe in Jesus. This is the way, as uh, as the, you know, the Mandalorian puts it. Uh, that, that was actually the original uh, term for Christianity. That's how it was referred to originally was the way. These are followers of the way because Jesus is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So then Christians were those who followed the way. They follow Jesus. Jesus is the way. They believe in the way. And I like that better, actually. If there was a way to say that I am a follower of the way uh, without confusing everybody or then thinking I'm part of some weird cult, and there's somebody probably has already done that, um, you know, said, oh, hey, this is the way. Uh, not Mandalorians, not Star Wars. Um, so anyway. I'll say it in the historical context after having unpacked that. I'll put it that way. But uh, I said, you know, I'm going to go sleep like a Calvinist because God is sovereign, right? They're right about that. They might not be right about free will, and I don't think they are right about free will. Uh, not that the scriptures that they cite are untrue, but their interpretation of those scriptures is not necessarily infallible. They're, the way they connect those dots is not uh, infallible. That is not necessarily the inspired word of God, how they interpret the word of God. Whether the word of God is, is uh, infallible, but the way we interpret the word of God is not always infallible. So we have to be sober, we have to be vigilant, 
our adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We need to be uh, approved workmen that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to study in order to do that. And uh, and we have to be humble. God resists proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We have to be humble. If we are proud and conceited, we invalidate whatever, whatever we touch. We invalidate and we undermine all of it. And there may be a day where Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. We say, Lord, Lord, look at all the things we did. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. You didn't do that for me, you did that for you. You were puffed up. You were about yourself. Depart from me. That wasn't about me. That was about you. You received your reward. Jesus says at one point, do not give as the Pharisees do. Do not pray as the Pharisees do. They want to be seen by men. They want to win the praise of men and have a fine reputation. And everyone you know, greets them with respectful accolades. And meanwhile, they pray in the temple. Oh, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that sinner over there. And it's it's rubbish. It's absolute rubbish. And, uh, and so when we say that uh, we are really on the ball with a certain doctrine, we've really figured it out. And even when it comes to self-deprecating, when we, you know, I'm going to rake myself over the coal. Oh, I'm such a wretched sinner. There's nobody who's a, as big of a sinner as I am. Oh, I'm just awful. Even that could be conceit. It's it's uh, humble boasting. We don't, we don't need to announce our giving with tambourines. We don't need to pray on the street corner so that we can be seen by men. And I and I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to turn my reservations about, uh, you know, picking up one of these flags these theological shorthands and saying, I'm in this camp. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I don't want to make much of that either and then become conceited. So anyway, we'll move on. We'll move on to the next topic, lest I be tempted to that. So in the time I have left, which is not a great deal of time if I want to keep this episode under an hour, I want to talk a little bit in summary of my 34 years of life thus Far. I am over one third of one century old now. I am 0.34 centuries old, which is fun. And, uh, you know, I talk from time to time with people about one of my favorite subjects, which is Genesis. I love Genesis. I grew up uh, listening to Ken Ham, seeing him speak in person several times. I got to meet him once, I shook his hand. I told him that I was trying to debate with atheists on uh, scienceforums.net and all these, you know, astrophysicists and, uh, and and rocket scientists and you know um, microbiologists and you know all these really really uh, accomplished intellectuals and, and scientists and all that. I was trying to debate with them about creationism, and uh, I thought that would impress him. And he just was like, "Oh yeah, yep. I suppose there there are websites like that." Nice to meet you, you know. And and he's yeah, he's a busy guy. And I was young; I was seventeen, maybe. Um, you know, I I don't know what I was trying to accomplish by bragging about all that. But uh, I did get him to sign my book, and I shook his hand, and it was it was uh, it was a huge thing. I was I was so pleased to do that. Um, thought very highly of Ken Ham growing up, and Answers in Genesis. And we subscribed to the magazine, went to the museum on opening day, and one other time. Um, but I, I love Genesis, and I love more of Genesis than just what Answers in Genesis uh, unpacks. And I, I don't follow them so much here lately or, or in recent years. Uh, I have other material that uh, I feel I need to study in order to do well what my purpose is and uh, to follow my calling. And so I have I have taken to politics in a similar fashion to how I believe Answers in Genesis took to science. They said, science should glorify God. If I'm going to be a Christian scientist, then I need to reclaim this. I need to take every thought captive. So that includes the thoughts about science and how the universe works and what are the mechanics here and where did we come from and what's that big ball of burning gas billions of miles away? What is it made of? How far away is it? How do I know? How big is it? 
How long would it take us to get there, et cetera, et cetera. I love the mystery of how briefly, for instance, Genesis 6, 4 talks about the sons of God and the daughters of men. Go look it up. That's not what this episode is about, but uh, talks about giants in the land in those days and also afterwards. Talks about sons of God coming and taking wives uh, of any that they chose among the daughters of men and having offspring with them, having children with them. What is that? What is that about? What does that mean? What are you talking about? And then the you know, narrative just carries on, right? Just continues on, talks about Noah, talks about the flood. And uh, and you're like, wait, 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 go back, go back, go back, go back. What? What are you talking about? Uh, but it doesn't elaborate in, in that passage. Uh, you have to really, really study and, uh, and do a lot of digging because a lot of this stuff has been covered up. It's, do, it's not um, fashionable to embrace these passages and, uh, and it, people think you're crazy, especially in the naturalistic uh, society that we live in now. We're not ready for the implications of these things, no matter how sophisticated and high-minded and smart and wise we think we are and all of our chronological snobbery. We're not ready for this. But uh, I think it's interesting, and I think the genealogies are, are very interesting. The fact that these people live for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, and they were made to live forever. We were made for eternity. We were made to live forever. 34 years, I'm not ready for a midlife crisis, even if I die at 68, because I wasn't made to live for only 68 years. I'm made to live forever. So if I'm hit by a car taken out by disease, you ain't got enough bullets in your gun, man, please. We're going to live forever. To quote the cross movement song, you know, I think it's I think it's very compelling to look at Genesis, to look at God's original plan for humanity, where He says it's good, creation is good, initially before the fall. To look at where He says it's not good that the man should be alone, and then to look at what God says after He makes Eve and He introduces Eve to Adam. God says it's very good. And he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He gives that command again to Noah and his sons and their wives after the flood, after they get off the ark. and They are trying to go back out into the real world after it's been destroyed. The Etch-A-Sketch has been shaken and God is starting over again with Noah and his family. God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And so that is part of our purpose, I believe, unless God has called you to be single and celibate or you just can't have children which happens sometimes, and that's as may be. God has a purpose for that and a plan for that as well, if that is your lot. But I think about these genealogies, and I think about how, you know, the, the way that it is right now, our average life expectancy, as it gets up and up and up and up, and it gets closer to 100 years old, and as you have scientists working on trying to crack these uh, genetic codes that limit our lifespan, and you get into transhumanism. You get into people thinking, hey, we could use artificial organs to supplement. If we have organ failure, let's just replace that organ with a uh, synthetic alternative. Let's just live forever. Let's download our consciousness into our smartphone and live forever. But originally, we were supposed to live forever. And so there's a sense in which that desire to live forever is not surprising. But... As we extend our lifespan, if I think I'm going to live to 100 years old and all four of my grandparents who have passed away now lived into their 90s, then I don't feel a midlife crisis uh, taking hold of me at 34. I'm a third of the way through life. I'm not halfway through life. Now, if the average life expectancy in my family and in broader society is 68, well, then I guess I'm about halfway there right now, huh? But I don't know. I don't know how much longer I have to live. I don't. For all I know, I die tomorrow. I die in my sleep tonight. I die next year. I die, you know, I don't know. The good Lord knows. All I know is that I am alive now. I have now. I am here now. So what do I do with the time that I have? I have this moment. What did I do before? What might I do in the future? What should I do now? Life is funny i'm recording a podcast right now Can, well, I, i'm recording a podcast 
Not the paper for the printer. Not down there. Oh, hey. In the bathroom. Anyone make a new the mat? And I think someone sneaks into our house. Because there were paper. Okay. I'll take a look once I'm finished recording this episode. Can I finish oh, I my... I'll pick it up. Okay. If you would do that, that would be great. I'm going to finish my episode here. I'm almost done, okay? Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. So, for instance, that right there. Life is what happens while you're making other plans. And I have seven children, so I usually record early, early in the morning while everybody's asleep. At some point, I want to have my children on as guests on this program. And I want to interview each of them, talk with them about everything, talk about whatever, whatever they want to talk about. My daughter Evelyn wants to talk about unicorns. I think that'll make a fantastic segment. I so want to talk with my daughter about unicorns, see what she has to say. I've got some questions, and uh, stay tuned for that one. I want to talk with each of my sons about whatever interests them, right? If it's drawing, if it's books, if it's uh, parkour, if it, you know, whatever. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about that. You tell me why that interests you. What have you learned? And where do you want to be, right? Where do you, where's, what are your, your plans for this uh, field, you know, are you going to become a parkour artist? Are you going to become a illustrator? Are you going to become a unicorn tamer? I don't know. Um, now, as you can hear, my second to youngest, Enoch, that's who just came up and was talking with me. And he's concerned that uh, he found some papers on the floor. Maybe somebody broke into our house and spread papers all over the floor. He uh, is awake now. It's about 7.20, so it's late enough in the day that the uh, woodland creatures are beginning to wake from their slumber and climb out of their burrows and start the day. And as they do, it will become increasingly uh, difficult to record, and so that's that's why I typically start early. I, you know, I wake up naturally at 5 a.m., and then if I have a little bit of coffee and smoke my pipe, and wake up a little bit, then I can typically start recording about 5.30. And uh, if I'm recording an hour-long podcast, I'm typically done by 6.30. And my kids and company, they typically are awake and they're starting the day and going about their business. Um, 6.30 to 7. They start kind of trickling out one by one. And uh, today, I got started a little bit later, slept in a little bit later, took my time, and uh, so that that is what it is. But uh, I'd like, as I continue on with this podcast, whether it's for posterity, whether it's for your benefit, whether it's for your enjoyment, I'd like to have my children on one by one and interview them. And I'd like to have my wife on. I'm really trying to talk her into it. Uh, if you know my wife, Lauren, uh, encourage her to submit to her husband. Uh, I'm trying to get her to come onto my show because she is my balance. She does even me out. Uh, the Lord God said it was not good that man should be alone. I will make a helpmeet suitable for him. So in my case, God made Lauren, and she is a helpmeet suitable for me. I am very long-winded, and I take a really long time sometimes to get to my point, and I uh, take a circuitous route. I don't take the direct approach. Uh, I... I come at it a couple of different directions before I finally stand there and just, you know, look at you like, see? And and my wife is the one who helps me to realize, oh, wait a second. What? Let's simplify that. Let's boil that down. Let's get to the bottom line. I don't get it. I don't understand what you're getting at. She helps me do that. And I think if she came on the podcast for an episode, even if she doesn't want to be a regular feature, which I know she doesn't, she doesn't necessarily even want to come on for one episode because she's more shy, more reserved, which is also another way she balances me and I balance her. But if she comes on, I think it'll be uh, really fun. I would enjoy it. And I think you would enjoy it. I think you would benefit from it. It would humanize me. And uh, it would also um, help me to you know, keep grounded 
Now, you know, in electricity, which is uh, something I work with quite a bit in my day job, you uh, can have major problems with powering devices, uh, instruments, equipment, if you don't have proper grounding. And if you've got electricity just going anywhere it pleases, it can cause some, some real trouble. It's not a question of, you know, do you want electricity in this motor, in this drive, in this pump? In, you know, not necessarily pump, but, the, you know, the motor that's going to drive the pump. Do you want electricity in there? Well, yeah, you do. But you want it in the right place, in the right amount, and you want it to come back out again in the right direction. And if you have grounding issues, you can put stress in places that are not designed to be stressed and you can shorten the lifespan of uh, your your equipment and so proper grounding is critical in instruments if you don't have proper grounding the thing might not work at all or it might prematurely fail or it might not read properly you might have interference in your signal and so you know my wife she helps me to remain grounded that's one of the ways that God has blessed me she's she is my balance. She helps me to, to you know, come back down to earth and, uh, and all of that. And I think she's also very funny. She, you know, she doesn't have as much to say about anything as I do. She could not necessarily do an hour long podcast the way that I do. Um, nor does she, de- nor, nor does she desire to, she doesn't, you know, um, she, she is not ambitious in that way. I'll put it that way. But she's really great with the one-liners. She's really great with the zinger. And she's really great with getting to the point. I'm not always as good at getting to the point. I'm great at taking you on a nice country drive. And, oh, look at that. And, oh, look at this. And, hey, that's really neat. And this is important. And you should see this. And you should notice this. My wife is better at uh, saying, hey, wait a second. What are we trying to do here? Oh, right, 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 right. Sorry, I should explain. And so she helps me to stay focused. Uh, when I want to talk about everything, and I think I should, she helps me to remember, hey, we've got to talk about this thing and be clear and let's show our work and let's carry that one. And she double checks my math, right? So I'm very, very thankful for her. As I turn 34 today, uh, my wife and my children really are the, the chief blessing, which I think of. The fact that I have been married now for almost 14 years, uh, November 25th will mark 14 years of marriage to my wife, Lauren Elizabeth Mullet. We have seven children. We have Josiah David, Elihu James, Solomon Emmanuel, Daniel Joseph, Evelyn Grace, Enoch Theophilus, John Lazarus. That's huge. That's huge to me. And I don't say that's huge to, to brag, to boast. I say that because I feel so overwhelmed with the privilege that it is. I feel inadequate to the task, and yet I know that God is able to bring me through it. He's able to equip me. He's able to uh, accomplish his purpose for giving me this wife and these children. In spite of my uh, weakness, in spite of my uh, sometimes confusion, or lack of forethought or disorganization or whatever. Uh, God has it in hand. So we trust the good Lord and we ask him for wisdom. And uh, and that's life, right? That is life in a nutshell. That's my life, 34 years of age. Today's my birthday. But uh, you know, even tomorrow, after my birthday's over, next month, the month after that, et cetera, et cetera. That's life. That's life for all of us is... Uh, we need to trust the good Lord. We need to not be conceited. And uh, we need to, to not lose heart. Let's be intentional about it. I thank you for listening if you've listened this far. Uh, as always, reach out if you have something to add, if you've got a thought to contribute. If you'd like uh, me to cover a certain topic in an upcoming episode, uh, throw it my way and we will get to it. If you're still in the midst of this election stuff and you're not listening to this as kind of an archive thing, like, oh, I'm curious what he said way back then, uh, you know, stay strong. Don't stress out. God's got this. Uh, let's be responsible. Let's be uh, intentional about things. But uh, life will go on, and we're here for a purpose. So anyway, thank you for listening, and God bless. God bless.